consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barton Cane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Cane, here for you. Visit www.bartoncane.com. Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reeds, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B-flat key. All are maintained by oboe-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation and scheduling challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set up yourself for success and sign up for their newsletter. That's UglyDucklingOboes.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Hello from the future or the past. Is it the future <laughs> or the past? Uh, we are in the past and the future. We're speaking to the future while in the past. Don't go through the door on the left. Go through the door on the right. Yeah, it's like back to the future. The, the future depends on it. Don't get in the DeLorean. <laughs> Gen Z, if you don't know that reference, we're going to put it on the syllabus. So, <laughs> and we'll slime you. It'll be on the syllabus and we'll slime you. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Oh. Uh, we're acting like weirdos because this is a pre recorded dish. See, listen, I'm about to knock on wood before I do this humble brag, not so humble brag. In six and a half years, we have never failed y'all come rain or come shine. The episodes have come out on the first and 15th of every month. Thank you. Type a personality. <laughs> Thank you, Jackie. <laughs> Thank you. Toxic perfectionism. Um, <laughs> but right now, as you're listening, I am in New Zealand, like, having the time of my life, we hope, um, after a restful day of sleep on a plane. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so we pre-recorded things so that they were ready to be released. So if there was any like double read drama or news or events, this will not reflect that. And so we're sorry about that. Also, uh, Jackie, you will not be reachable by text at this point. So if you don't WhatsApp me, I'm going to be so mad. I actually, I think maybe you can still use iMessage. As long as you're on Wi-Fi. Yeah. So yes, but I am putting up a very clearly boundaried away message on my email. That's like, 
even if I can, don't expect a response. I'm doing things that are not email right now. I am unreachable. <laughs> I for cannot be reached. 700 weeks. <laughs> you know what's so funny? What do you think could be like a double read newsworthy event? Um, somebody invented a 3D printed plastic American scrape oboe read that is beautiful and perfectly in tune with great response. Plays perfectly at any altitude. Mm-hmm. Yes, that would pretty be a pretty good like news of a, event. I'm wondering if there could be any like bassoon scandals, mm. like virtuoso revealed to have tongue implant so they can uh play marriage of figaro with ease (laughs) (laughs) oboe virtuoso revealed to be a robot oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) turns out it wasn't possible after all yeah no kidding well you are off gallivanting currently in new zealand while i am napping in Hattiesburg. Yes. So our topic for the day is how you stay motivated during the summertime. So Jackie, how are you staying motivated in the summertime? I actually don't struggle. I struggle actually with with motivation more during the academic year than I do in the summertime, interestingly, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times I will save all of my projects and things that I'm like, wouldn't that be cool? Um, or, okay, that's a great idea, but it's kind of too big to work on while I'm balancing a teaching schedule and work and all that type of stuff. So I've got several things that I've been like, not yet. You got to wait till your schedule clears out for the summer. Um, that one, I think I can talk about, I have signed a publishing agreement with a, um, publisher <laughs> to be redundant. <laughs> and- to write a method book. And so I've been waiting to get started on that. Um, And so that is forthcoming. I have a couple compositional ideas that I've been waiting to dig into. But so I guess that's what I do is I keep my projects and big ideas in reserve until I have time to work on them. And then I'm able to maintain a momentum because work is replaced by something that is super exciting to me and feels kind of like a a hobby a bassoon related hobby the from the comfort of my couch while working on something what about you uh same i have like learning a new recital and chamber music repertoire like stuff like new new to me music that i actually have time to dig into you know like working on um like i'm planning uh, a recording session to do Sipway so that we can actually have it on like an official recording, like a very good quality video and audio recording to put on both of our websites so that people will play it um, on repeat. Uh, Yeah, like just learning new music and like preparing for the projects that I have coming up in the next academic year, making a ton of reads. Like I get so happy to just do uh, unstructured, free arts and crafts time, practice time. Like just, yeah, I, I love it. I love the summer. 
Let me ask you a question that's kind of tangential. So bassoonists can stockpile reads really easily. Like we could stockpile a thousand reads if we wanted to. But y'all have a staple. So is it basically like, obviously you can only stockpile as many as you have staples, but would it be like incredibly ridiculous for an oboist to own a triple digit staples? Or is that like, no, that happens, especially at the professional level? I would say that some people do that. Yeah, I definitely don't have that many staples. So what's an oboe stockpile to you? Uh, Probably, like, if I could have 20 to 40, mm-hmm. that'd be good. Yeah. You know, 20 to 40, like, almost finished reads. Mm-hmm. They're so susceptible to seasonal change that it doesn't make a lot of sense to, like, scrape a read in the summer that you would want to play in the winter. So leaving them more as a blank or, like, Mm -hmm. you could also consider, like, processing, splitting cane, gouging cane, you know, that that kind of thing you could do ad nausea. Like, you could do as much as, as you have time for. Okay. There's yeah. my little bassoon questions to the oboist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, we asked our listeners how they find their mojo when they are lacking inspiration. And so let's see what they had to say. Margali says, for days, I desperately do not want to practice. I will allow myself to goof off for 15 minutes, then pack up. If I do not have the motivation to even get my instrument out, I listen to my favorite pieces by my favorite musicians and try to find a new favorite. Recordings are, I completely agree, Margalee, like listening to someone throw down, like that's also why I think I'm a bit of an outlier where people are like conferences, that's geek land. And I get so much motivation from attending conference Mm -hmm. because I love to watch other people just play and be awesome and it, I always leave conference going I want to practice 20 hours a day and I'm, I'm so my well is so full and so yeah recordings are and back in our day you had to go to the library to hear recordings of your favorite so you all don't know how good you have it with YouTube the hours that were spent finding and listening to recordings in a library yes the hours and you didn't know what these people looked like. You had the nope. one headshot that was taken probably 25 years ago. Yep. <laughs> Rachel says something I do on a small scale is give myself absolute permission to do nothing today. Inevitably, in an hour or so, I then intensely want to practice. Boredom is the mother of creativity, is it not? That's very true. I love that. I do this as well, but I usually need an entire day, not an entire hour off. But yeah, just giving in. What if you what if you gave yourself an hour of no Bravo TV? That's not a life I want to live. <laughs> uh, Noelle says, oh, I agree with this. And you already referenced this a bit. Noelle says that when she's in a rut, she likes to learn a new piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Rachel agrees. Yes, I repertoire fatigue is real and you know i have students like should i start on my recital repertoire this summer and i go no absolutely not you'll be so sick of that stuff come april you do not need to work on your rep for 10 months 
mm-hmm. or at least work on it like the year before and then give yourself like a like a huge time off like six months in between yes and that's a good strategy too because you can come at it with fresh eyes but you don't feel like you're under a time crunch that's a good point mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and christy says apparently it's getting one more degree congratulations christy that's yes. so cool Yes, that is an interesting technique. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if it's sustainable, but <laughs> Chrissy, you're going to be so motivated. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> cool. Well, we hope you all are, you know, feeling super motivated or not, and that you're just taking your summer to relax in a hammock with a glass of lemonade. That's also something we co sign on. Well, listen, just because I'm going to be practicing and making reads a lot does not mean I'm not also going to nap. Yes, we can have it all. Hey, oboists. Have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes F. Loray of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.oboechicago.com. For a credit of $100 toward shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. We are so excited to welcome to the podcast, Leah Forsyth, Assistant Professor of Oboe at Northwestern State University. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, it's really great to be here. We always start the same way. We want to hear how you came to the oboe. So when and how did you start playing this instrument? I started playing the instrument when I was about 10. And I think that the oboe kind of chose me. Uh, I So I started playing piano. Let's backtrack. I started playing piano when I was in kindergarten. So about five. Um, my brother had already played piano. Um, and he, you know, I wanted to be, do all the things that he did. And, and so I played from, you know, kindergarten into fifth grade. And in fifth grade, you know, they do the the band. I wanted to be in band and come in and try all the instruments. And I honestly don't have a specific memory of trying the oboe, but I know that they were like, oh, you already play piano and read music. You'll be good at oboe. <laughs> and so they, I, and my dad like had an affinity for the oboe too. He's like, I like this instrument, so you should do it. And um, I started playing from there and I had a really great band teachers in um, middle middle school and, and high school as well um, and the the band that I grew up in playing with in uh, central Ohio just outside of Columbus Reynoldsburg Ohio go Raiders 
they had a, had a great band director and we actually had several really good oboists in that band, which did two things for me. One, uh, made me not the lone oboist in a band, which is kind of unique. And also, uh, had a little competition, which was good and bad. I think um, we were we all ended up being friends, but it um, it was kind of unique to have you know three. I, there was three of us that were all pretty good and all ended up being professional musicians in in some capacity. So that's how I I got my start on oboe, um, and then I I continued to play piano and oboe for. Well, I still obviously play the oboe. I play the piano in quotes. Um, enough to like play along with my students. Let's play the slow movements of things. Um, but the, um, I continue to take piano lessons all the way through um, into college. Actually, I, I had to take a year of class piano, um, the advanced version. And then after that took private lessons. And, uh, I joke that after a year of collegiate, piano private lessons that I was like, I do not have time to play all of these notes at once. I can play one note at once on the oboe, not 12 notes at once on the piano. And uh, so I kept playing piano, but decided really that oboe was, was more, more for me and uh, continued from there. So. What made you decide that you wanted to pursue music as a career? Professionally, I think there was sort of two two pivotal moments. One was when I was accepted into the Columbus Symphony Youth Orchestra mm-hmm. in um, in Ohio, and that really put me into a group of musicians that was all of a sudden kids that were also as passionate about music as I was. Because high school band is a is a mix of everybody, people that love music, love their instrument, are taking private lessons, are diving into all of this. Kids that are like, oh, my grandma had a clarinet and I just happened to play it. And kids that just like the social aspect of it. And all of that is great in that realm. But then you get into a different group where there's students that um, really want to be serious and just love all of the music. And and that really was was a turning point for sure. Um, it it kind of happened to be a, a right place, right time situation. There, the the main auditions for the orchestra had already happened, and somebody couldn't, somebody that had been accepted into the group couldn't couldn't do it. And so I did sort of a an audition on the side, and got in like got accepted into the group late. And then I was thrown into this orchestra and I was like, whoa. And it was really my first time playing in a, in a, an orchestra with, with strings and not with band. And I was like, oh, this is where it's at. (laughs) This is, this is the stuff. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so that kind of really, you know, got me excited about it. And the other like pivotal moment, I think after that, so that would have been my junior year in high school. And then the year after that, I went to Sewanee Summer Music Festival. Um, and that was like taking all of, you know, the youth orchestra kids and then elevating it even more. Cause then now here was this group of students that wanted to study all summer and do nothing but music all summer. And also, uh, if anyone who's ever been there, it's just, it's a really beautiful place in the summer and, you know, they used to play concerts in these like a beautiful chapel and just, and so all of that coming together 
I remember sitting outside one day and just being like, yep, I think I want to, I think I want to do this forever. Um, I didn't know at that point that I would spend half my life whittling on, um, cane, but, uh, they don't that, really kinda, tell you that. No, they don't. Tell you that. <laughs> they, they wouldn't get anyone to play if they, if they told you that. those were the um those were the two moments that I that I've specifically you know I remember the orchestra and then and then these summer festivals that that just sort of catapulted my interest in in doing it professionally so can you talk to us about or can you maybe walk us through your training and educational journey post high school yeah so my collegiate training. So uh, well, I had a fantastic um, teacher in high school. Um, her name is Karen Pfeiffer, and she freelances and plays all over Central Ohio. And she is just fantastic. She had a very thriving high school oboe studio. Um, she still she still does teaches at Ohio Wesleyan and just does fantastic things for the the high school community and middle school high school community in in central Ohio. And I'm still friends with her. Hi, Karen. I hope you listen. And, um, she, you know, really guided me on that, on the process of wanting to audition to go to music school for performance. Um, I, I'm really lucky that my parents also, neither of them are musicians, but they have been ever supportive of the process. My, my brother and I joke that my parents raised a musician and a philosopher and so um, we will never have any money, but they're very proud of us. <laughs> <laughs> we are both in academia now, so somehow we, we managed to make it work. But uh, <laughs> my, uh, my parents were very, very supportive of it. Um, you know, a little bit like, well, what are you really going to do with a performance degree? But hey, do it make it work. Um, and, and I've always, and now on the academic side of things, uh, I've always thought that at least for me, and I think for a lot of students, college, or if you know you go to school out of, out after secondary school of some kind is more than just getting the degree to get a job. It's really figuring out who you are, studying things that you like, finding like-minded people, finding your niche, all those things. So they were supportive of that. So I decided to audition at, at lots of different schools for undergrad. Uh, what ended up happening is that I got accepted into um, University of Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music, which is like, if you're from Ohio and you're an Ohio resident, it's like the best thing that could possibly happen because CCM, and a lot of people don't know this, but is, is actually, it's a state school. So oh, I didn't even know that. College Conservatory of Music is the CCM part. So the the it's, it's the college within the University of Cincinnati. Oh, that's awesome. It's a conservatory within a state school. So if you're from Ohio, you like hit the jackpot because you get to mm-hmm. go have conservatory education at a state school. Um, so that was sort of the one that I was really, really hoping for at the end of the day. And that worked out beautifully studied with Mark Ostich there, who was fantastic, learned so, so many things from him. Um, Remaking just, I mean, he is one of these people that he's been on here that, that um, 
he just loves the remaking process and finds it all very fascinating. And so that rubbed off a lot on me. I'm not sure I will ever maybe love it as much as him, but, <laughs> but just, you know, diving in and, and figuring out all the different creative processes in that way. Um, so did that then came more summer festivals and those were really, again, things that, that connected me to where I ended up at Florida state for graduate school. So I spent two summers at Brevard music festival where Eric Olson teaches and that connection really made me want to go study with him for graduate school. And at that point, my trajectory I had decided was I'm going to get a master's. I'm going to learn what I need to do to really dive in and hit the audition circuit. And I'm just going to take auditions. I'm going to do my master's and take auditions. And we're just, we're going to make this work. That's what I'm going to do. And if I had now, if I could tell myself some things, I would have given myself a lot more grace and just let it happen. That may not be the path. You may not, you may take auditions and end up doing this or it, the the whole path might, might curve a bit more. But I think that um, for me, that was the reason that I now, and I'll, you know, I do not have a doctorate, which I feel in academia now sometimes um, inferior is the wrong word. I don't feel inferior, but that's something that most professors in, in academia now, especially incoming do have. And so well, I feel like it makes you exceptional. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> you know, it's, re- it's, I mean, it's so difficult to get a job in academia. Never, never mind one without a doctorate. You know what I mean? You're just that good. Oh, well, that's nice of you. But I noticed one, one of your, one of your questions is about imposter syndrome. So we could just dive into that right now. <laughs> Um, <laughs> no, but I mean, people do often ask me, like, not what, not in an accusatory way. Why don't you have a doctorate? But the, the real answer to that is that I wasn't planning on, on being in, in academia. That really wasn't what I had intended to do. So I was like, I don't need to stay in school to get a doctorate at this point. And I did, I did think about it because you finish your master's and you're like, what now? And, and so I was like, do I stay do the doctorate? I was like, no, I said, I wanted to hit the audition circuit and I don't need to be in school to do that. In fact, it would be harder to be in school and also do that. And so I, I just kind of hit the ground running from there, but I would, you know, academically the, the, the training that I've had with both Dr. Ostich and Dr. Olson, you know, did wonderful things for me in terms of allowing me to know what I needed to do to audition, but also allowed me to know what, what really, you know, teaching in academia was like, and they were both very real about that and all the things that, that, that came with. Um, and then, you know, my, my summer study, um, at Brevard and also I was very, very fortunate to spend a summer at Sarasota music festival, um, which, so I got to study it's three weeks briefly. So with, with Nancy King and with Alan Vogel and with um, Neil Black at that point, um, who that was really a, a fantastic experience because I hadn't studied with um, a non-American oboist. And so mm-hmm. learning from, from him was fantastic because he was like, you Americans and your sound, like just get over it and play music, you know? And that, 
I mean, I don't think he said it quite like that, but maybe he did. I don't remember. I love it. But he was just like, just, just play, just play the music. Like quit, quit, quit obsessing about the sound, you know, or, or yeah, I know I sound different than you all, but we can all play music and we can, we can do things with phrases and we can, you know, be excited about all the same things, even though we sound different. And I really, I really took that to heart because I mean, we, we do get obsessed with how we sound and how, how rich our tone is and we're, we feel judged on that. And, mm-hmm. and I think that, well, that it is real, but I, I also tell my students that, you know, the difference between two different reads, the only one who is going to notice that is you, nobody else is really going to notice that. So. It really speaks to the importance of all of these extracurriculars, your journey so far. I mean, your involvement in youth orchestra, your involvement in summer music festivals, um, you know, part of the, um, I guess, mission statement of this podcast is to, you know, give a real picture to people who may or may not have access to resources of what it takes to have a career in music. And I think that's a, that's a really important part of it is getting involved and getting connected and, and, you know, meeting people outside of your city or your circle or your school. Um, so thank you for, you know, bringing light to that because, you know, I, I, I do think it's incredibly important if you want to have a career in performance, you have to, you know, take yeah. the summer and, and audition, you know what I mean? Like just, just work out how you can possibly make that happen for yourself. Mm-hmm. So that's a really good point that you make. Well, and those really ended up being some of my most fantastic musical experiences because you're just like, you're just immersed in it completely. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you didn't have to worry about your math class or cleaning your room or you, you just, that was it. You were immersed in, in music and study and, and fun for, for those six or eight weeks, whatever it was. And not getting eaten alive by mosquitoes or spiders. <laughs> well, Brevard did have those. I will say that. <laughs> well, and Brevard has an extra special place in my heart because it is where I met my husband. Oh so- my goodness. So, uh, yeah, and we'll, we can get into all that later, but, uh, yeah, so that actually, so I went there three different summers, uh-huh. very, very formative, very, just super special place to me. Um, but the first two years were in, during my undergrad and then I ended up studying with Dr. Olson and then the year in between my masters, I went back and I was like, Oh, I don't know if I want to do this again. He's like, no, 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 just come on. It'll be fun. It'll be fun. And it was, it was fantastic. And I'm really glad I went that summer because that's the summer that I met my husband. So. Well, we'll get back to husband in a minute. (laughs) He'll, he'll come back. Don't worry. (laughs) Okay. Talk us through your uh, professional journey. That's all. That's another interesting, interesting path that I never, never would have said that I would have done probably either of the the two main things that I, that I've been doing, but so, okay. Hit the ground running on the audition circuit, had some success off the bat, making finals in some, some auditions, which was like, so like, once you make the finals, once you're like, I can do this now, like then, then you get the confidence you need. You're like, okay, I can do this. I can do this. Um, and I ended up 
the the first job real real music job that I had was um playing English horn in the West Virginia Symphony which was not a full-time um job but had enough services that I could then I after graduate school I moved back to Columbus Ohio um because I knew I had some connections there and I had parents there that would support me (laughs) again very lucky for that and um, (laughs) it was that that orchestra was only about three hours from Columbus and so I could go there you know once, twice a month, whatever was required and go play there. And I got to play some fantastic rep and I love, love, love playing English horn. Um, I, I joke that, well, it's not a joke, actually. I would love to have a full-time job playing English horn. I love the oboe, but I, I English horn and I connect on a, on a different level. So uh, that was, was wonderful. And then I continued to do that and work also at the Jefferson School of Music, which is the pre-college department at Ohio State University. And I had a a part-time job there, which was great and also gave me good connections. And I felt even though like I wasn't performing doing that job, that I was still connected in the music world and I I really liked it. So kept auditioning because I'm like, okay, I I made the finals sometimes. I, I won this English horn job now I can keep doing it. And I see a job pop up for the U S army field band. And that audition process is slightly different. I had actually auditioned previously for the West point band. So I knew kind of the, the process of some of the, the military band um, organizations. So for that particular audition, I had to send uh, a preliminary I'm calling it a tape. How old do I sound? I had to sound like <laughs> I literally think it was at that point probably this was oh six. I think I had a sent, mini disc. It was probably a disc. I'm trying <laughs> to remember if I actually sent it digitally at that point or a disc. It, no, I think it, it probably it was a, a disc. disc. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, P.S. I still feel like I just finished graduate school, but uh, <laughs> that was a long time ago. So sometimes I'm like, oh yeah, just make a tape. Oh my God. Tape. Okay. So sent in, you know, the excerpt list or whatever. And then from there got invited to come audition in person. But what you actually have to do, and the process may have changed a little by this point, but what you actually have to do once you get invited to come to the finals is you have to go to the military processing center called MEPS and you have to actually get a physical and get approved to join the military before you even go because they mm. don't want to have people come to the finals that they couldn't possibly offer the job. Mm-hmm. So then I, and I had done the whole METS process prior to this because I had to do the same thing when I auditioned for the West Point band. So I kind of knew what I was in for there, but all of a sudden you're, you're just thrown into military situations so you're, you have to, you know, do this, the army physical and all of this and, you know, start doing tons of paperwork and start learning all kinds of what I now call TLAs, three letter acronyms. And, um, ev- all this lingo that you're like, what is going on? Um, and, and I am not, uh, this ended up being a really, really great experience for me, but it was not something I ever probably saw myself doing. If you had asked me if I was going to join the military, I would have been like me. No, like they would like 
I have my mouth is too ridiculous for the military. They would, they will never, they would never want that. <laughs> so, uh, so I go and I, you know, I, I get approved to go take the actual audition, go to take the audition at, in Fort Meade, Maryland at the, the army base there and won that audition. And then after that, so you win the audition and, and it's run very similarly to an orchestral audition first round blind they've narrowed it down i think there was nine or ten finalists there or something like that they narrow it down so your first your first round is blind which i was used to and then the the finals you they took the took the screen down and you got to actually play with the section a little bit which i think is is really great because i mean auditions as we know are not representative of what you're actually going to be doing in in the orchestra or the job they 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 showcase somebody's technical and musical ability absolutely but all the other little things that come along with collaborating and and things that you'll have to do on the job aren't necessarily there so I think when you when you can play with with the group for part of the audition that's really really telling and really beneficial for everybody um so yeah won that job and then they're like okay go join the army. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Off so, to basic training I go. <laughs> but yeah, so that <laughs> was in February. And then and I went to, I didn't actually go to basic training until that summer. So I went to basic training in Fort Jackson, South Carolina. And um, mil- Military folks will call it relax in Jackson because apparently it's the easiest of the basic training places to go. But I was like, uh, none of this is going to be relaxing. So <laughs> went to basic training. Uh, also, what I, I jokingly, my friends and I jokingly called it bridal boot camp because we were engaged. My husband and I were, well, my fiance at that point, we were engaged and we were going to get married in December. Um and so I was like, well, if nothing else, I'm just going to be in the best shape of my life. <laughs> I'm going to get in amazing physical shape. And so anytime I was drained, I was like, you're just going to look so good in your wedding picture. <laughs> but the funny part about it is that you go to, you win this audition to go play in this fantastic musical organization. I mean, really, the musicians in that ensemble are, are amazing. I mean, it's just a really, really great musical group. And then you go off to basic training for three months and don't touch your instrument because it's not special, like musicians, basic training, it's basic training with all walks of life. So everybody that was going to do every different kind of job, people that were going to officer school, people that had, you know, just finished high school from anywhere and everywhere were there. So that was really interesting, eye-opening experience. Um, And I'm I'm glad I did it. I, I love that I have that have that experience. Um, and, and I, I've, I've run into people that are, that say, I, I could never, I couldn't, I don't think I could do the military thing. Cause I don't think I could do basic training. And I'm like, if I can do basic training, you can do basic training. <laughs> Actually the biggest part, the biggest problem for me was just keeping my mouth shut <laughs> because you just need, to, and that's what everybody's advice was just be quiet and do what you're supposed to do. And, you know, um, the physical part of it was, it was very hot. Um, and then I, we had to do a lot of weapons training, which 
I'd never even, I'd never fired a gun. That was like, that was bizarre to me. Uh, and so I did it. You had to do it, but I was not particularly good at it, <laughs> but I passed enough to do it. So, but then from there you actually go. So I'm getting into way too much detail about this, but you go into, um, you go into advanced individual training after basic training, which if you're placed in one of the army's premier bands, which the field band is, you get to skip the advanced individual training, which for most military musicians is that you go to the army school of music. And so I got to go straight to my unit, got to go straight to the field band and you're just like, throw it in the fire. Here we go. I left three weeks later on a tour um, to the, the Midwest actually. And so that, band's main mission is to tour and promote the army and represent the army and make the country excited about all the things that the army is doing. And so that's what I did for four years. And during that time, my husband already, Paul, already had the position here at Northwestern state. He is the saxophone professor here. So he actually, I, I won the army job. And then like three months later, he was going to move to DC with me. And then he had finished his doctorate and was like, I, you know, I want to teach and was applying for jobs. He got offered this position and we were like, okay, let's make this work. So Mm. we had country home, city home. I had an apartment in DC and he uh, lived here in Natchitoches. And we went back and forth for four years, which most people are like that. Wow. That's how did you do that? And and sometimes we still say that, but we looked at the bigger picture where an academic schedule, you get nice breaks at Christmas and in the summer. So those were months we were able to be together anyway. And then I was going to be on the road for four months out of the year anyways, mm-hmm. traveling. So even if we had been in the same place, I would have been on the road. So that's kind of how we we looked at it. And, um, and there was, you know, some fun things about going back and forth because we, we had two different sets of friends and we, you know, got to live in, in DC in the summer. And that was really, really fun. And, um, but then after four years decided, okay, we want to be in the same place. And I, um, was able to come down here and start in an adjunct position teaching oboe and that position, uh, has just grown honestly. So after teaching adjunct for about four years, full-time adjunct, pretty much, uh, a new instructor position was created, which I was fortunate enough to receive. And then at our university, you can actually promote from instructor to assistant professor without another search. So um, that was able to happen. And now I'm, I've been in that role for four years. So again, academia kind of as a job came around full circle. I I hadn't necessarily planned on that. I'd always enjoyed teaching, but it wasn't what I had set out to do necessarily. And um, it worked out. So speaking of, of not having the doctorate, I I say that I have the the army doctorate. I have the, I have the sergeant, (laughs) not the doctorate. (laughs) Can I call you sergeant? (laughs) Well, you can, I guess, but I'm not, not enlisted anymore. That was, that was a, a, a learning curve too. all the, the, the titles and, but now there are so many likenesses to the military and academia, actually a lot, all of the different titles, 
ranks, sort of a chain of command, all these things that we use different terminology for a lot of it, but a lot of it is really quite, quite similar in terms of, you know, how the, how the structure is. So that's fun. Can you talk to us about the three reads duo? I would love to talk about the three reads duo. So, uh, met my husband at Brevard Music Festival and he was actually at school in Michigan State and I was in Florida State. So we, we started off long distance even before we were married long distance. We were together in Ohio for one year. <laughs> but um, we decided that we wanted to play music together. So he's a saxophonist and there is not a lot of music out there for oboe and saxophone. Well, there's more, a lot more now, but at that point, there's not a whole lot of music out there for that duo. So we did a couple of transcriptions of Baroque things. We played at friends' weddings. That was, that was the big thing. So everybody was like, my, my non-musician friends were like, oh, we, we, can you play at our wedding? And we're like, what does an oboe and a saxophone play at a wedding? But they were like, well, you're musicians. And we're like, okay. So we like played like Elvis duos. I mean, we, were, <laughs> we did we did anything that, that we could do. Um, and at that point, there's there were a couple of pieces already out there for oboe and saxophone, but not very many. And so we continued to want to perform together. We played, and I know people might cringe at this. I And I used to cringe at this, but actually I love it now. One of the first things we did was at a um, saxophone conference, we played the Poulenc Trio. No. Uh, he played 10. He played ten, the bassoon part on tenor. Oh, God. I know. <laughs> but, but I used to, if you had asked me when I was in graduate school, when I met a saxophone player that I now have been in a relationship with for almost 20 years, I would have, I like rolled my eyes. Oh my gosh, saxophone players and this crazy music they play. And they're always stealing other people's music and blah, you know, just big, huge eye roll. But then I got to know all these saxophone players and they're really there. They, that's such a, you know, the whole world, but a lo- some of the best musicians that I know are saxophone players. I mean, they're just like, and they dive into this contemporary music with like reckless abandon, like, yeah, whatever it's on the page. We'll make it work. And I, as an oboist, I'm like, yeah, but like, I can't do that. And some of the music that we commissioned early, I was like, well, that's, how do I, how do I do that? And again, Paul as a saxophone player was like, you just, you just figure it out. You just do it. It's on the page. You just, you know, you just, and so my idea of what was appropriate or acceptable to play really started to change once we started to collaborate. I also had this thought of like, well, would composers like it if we change the instrumentation or play something on an instrument it wasn't originally written for? And if you had asked 20 year old me, I would have done a huge eye roll, but 30 year old me was like, if I was a composer, I would just want my music played. I don't know that I would like be upset that it was on a different instrument. Um, And we won't know. We don't know those answers because a lot of the composers that we have transcribed are no longer living, but we also, we want to do the Poulenc again, because that was like one of our earliest performances and we're pretty sure it was terrible, but so we want to give it, there's no recording of it, but we want to give it another shot. So like, I think we can make it really good. I think uh, you should do it at IDRS <laughs> at a nighttime concert. For sure. For sure. 
my god can you imagine well here's the other thing okay so the the oboe community love it i'm a part of it but again our our take on playing the point trio with the saxophone is like oh my god saxophones are like it's cool whatever just play it play whatever on whatever pick an instrument you know, it, it the, the idea of what is, you know, appropriate or good is, is just a lot more broad. And so I, uh-huh. I like that, that that brought to me. So back to Three Reads specifically, um, we just continued to play together. And then once we were eventually in the same place here in Louisiana, uh, we really dived into commissioning works from new composers to have more of a repertoire for this instrumental combination. So we have now commissioned, I believe, 12 um, works for oboe and saxophone and all different instrumental combinations. Um, We have, let's see, oboe and alto, oboe and tenor, English horn and tenor, which is actually one of our favorite combinations because those instruments blend really well together. oboe and soprano we've done uh the other thing that again oboe is my cringe at but we like to and have recorded uh the Britain metamorphoses where we switch movements that was cool you did and, that live on campus yeah and it's, yeah. it's a, we like doing it live because when you do a duo performance especially if there's no piano if it's just you two it's exhausting because you're playing the entire time. Mm-hmm. And so that, when we perform that piece like that, it gives you a chance to be like, okay, I get like three minutes to, to have a break. And so we can, we alter the movements and I just give the really technical movements to the saxophone because it's way easier on saxophone anyway. So, <laughs> and you know, they're usually pretty good with us making fun of them. You know what I mean? I love, I love the saxophone and I love saxophone. <laughs> I do. So, um, but, and then, so the, the narcissist movement, we actually did it where, um, oboists that, that know this piece, the, you're supposed to perform it like an echo. And so we actually did it where, um, soprano is playing the main line and I do the, the echo part on oboe. Um, and it's, is it, it comes off really cool on the recording, but actually comes off really cool in person too, because mm-hmm. you can kind of stand off, not off stage, but like in the back and, and do the echo. So, okay. um, but yeah, we, we continue to play together. Uh, we have two different CDs that we've recorded and that was a journey and a process and a huge, huge, um, educational journey. Learning everything that goes into a recording is, is a lot. It also makes you feel a little better about when you listen to a, an absolutely perfect recording, um, knowing that everything that went into that was not, let me sit down and play it perfectly the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, ours, we did in one take. Don't get me wrong. Everything was except just for, Except for yours. Yours was perfect. <laughs> so we, <laughs> we were afforded some... Um, endowed professorships from our university that allowed us to fund the recording and production of our two different 
are two different albums um, available on all streaming services. So, oh yeah, listen to. <laughs> <laughs> but I get we get a lot of um, inquiries now about music for oboe and saxophone, and so um, what I'm actually I have all of our commissions up on my website um, under the three reads link and how to get that music and little clips and how to listen to it. Um, but what I'm actually going to start is uh, a bigger list of works that exist in general for that instrumentation and also including piano because that repertoire, some of it exists and it's starting, it's starting to grow even more. Ooh, that's cool. Yeah. Well, cause I get people like, Oh, how do I find it? And, and then I, I started sending emails, like typing all this stuff out and I'm like, no, 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 just to have a database. <laughs> where you can just go look at it and how to get the music and all of that. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, we, we've, we've commissioned from a lot of different musicians. We just premiered a work at NASA, the, the, not the space organization, but the North American saxophone Alliance, uh, by Derek Brown, who is saxophonist, know him as beatbox sax. Um, but if you look up beatbox saxophone, um, Derek does these really just amazing creative things with the saxophone and we got to be friends with him when he uh came to Natchitoches for saxophone day and to work with the saxophone studio here and we said oh would you write us a duo and so we just premiered that and that was it's a really fun really fun piece um we also have work a work that we commissioned by Alyssa Morris a few years ago which is gorgeous and challenging and and again, if you want to see the list of other things we've commissioned, but we, we love new music. We like transcriptions. Our basic philosophy is if there's somebody in your life that you want to make music with, figure out a way to make music with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That leads perfectly to my next and our last question of the interview. Can you believe it? Ah! <laughs> what advice do you have to a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? My advice to a young musician just starting out is just to keep an open mind because you never know where your career is really going to take you. If you had asked me if my career was going to be doing exactly what I'm doing now, um, freelancing, teaching, um, performing new music with a saxophone player, I would have probably laughed um, because my original trajectory was to just have an orchestral job, which is wonderful and fantastic, but there aren't that many jobs like that out there. Um, so just to really keep an open mind and do anything that anything that you feel propels you forward in the musical world, take the opportunity. Um, I have started teaching a class this semester that I really, really hope to continue teaching called senior seminar for musicians there, I have a small group of students that we have been working through Janet Ingalls' book, um, Happiest Musician. So I'll plug that. If you haven't read it, it's fantastic. She has so many, so much good insight. Um, and we read through that. And um, her whole take is basically keeping an open mind and creating a portfolio career, do all the different things that make you happy. And some of those things might be directly musically related. And some of them might be other things. Um, I've always been a person with a lot of different interests. I love the oboe and I love music, but I also um, 
loved going to football games and I love gardening and I love dogs and I like socializing with my friends. And so all of these things combined, um, sometimes I feel like I'm not able to dive into music or oboe in a way that would have allowed me to have a solely performing career. And whether or not that's true, I don't know. I just sometimes feel that way. But I think that all those other things that I'm interested in and they, they end up coming full circle and have helped me in the musical world in some way um, in guiding young students to put themselves out there and create a career and create connections. And I mean, connections come from places other than the music world too. I mean, it's a small musical world, but I actually ended up playing in a quintet once because my dad's chiropractor's wife was the flute player in Columbus that needed an oboe player for her quintet. So, and we're still friends. Hi, Emily. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, just keeping an open mind and putting yourself out there and making connections. And now I think a lot of that really is um, making your information and your, your product, whatever it is, if that's your music or your reads or your publishing or your teaching, having a way for the public to access that, which typically is, you know, online in some capacity, but just making as many connections as you can and not being afraid to do that. Um, and that's taken taken me years to not be afraid to, to really put myself out there. Sometimes it's still scary, um, but just continuing to do that and keeping an open mind because you never know where, where your path will, will take you. And I also think that there's a place in, in the musical world for everybody to have a career in some capacity if they want it. Mm-hmm. And I think that even in the 20 years since I really began my collegiate and professional journey, that that whole, the whole idea of a professional musician has changed. You know, it can be a combination of a bunch of different things. And it's, Mm -hmm. it can be really empowering to control all of that yourself too, and not have to be at somebody else's, um, somebody else's mercy or somebody else's schedule. So um, find the things that you love and what's important to you and make that fit into music in some way is my best advice. This has been such a great interview. Leah, thank you so much for joining us on Double Read Dish. You are such a light and we're so happy to share this with everyone. Well, thank you. You are both so fantastic. I love what you're doing for the Double Read community. And I just, I was really, really honored to get asked to be on this because when I saw that you were doing this from the beginning, I was like, oh, that would be so fun. I feel like I've arrived being asked to be on this. gonna ask you but I'm serious I really I really was honored to be asked to to be on it and I hope that through my stumbling and throat clearing and all of that I I can can speak to somebody out there that whose journey might be something something like mine thousand percent okay we hope you enjoyed that episode from the future slash past and Maybe Michael J. Fox will join us for the next episode. <laughs> JK, it's not Michael J. Fox. Who is it, Glee? <laughs> it's not Michael J. Fox in the movie. And I was like, what movie are you watching? <laughs>
Next episode, we had a wonderful chat with Kayla Bellamy, assistant professor of bassoon at Colorado State University. Jackie, we really have to end this nerd parade. Go McReads. <laughs>